all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens, and MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. It's that time of year for cold and flea season, so today we're going to be talking about colds, what causes colds, the treatment, when you may need antibiotics, and when you need to go to the doctor. We're going to be discussing some of the complications that you can get as well. So we would love to hear from you. Share your comments and questions with us this morning by calling one mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can also send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So we're going to get into cold and flu season and when you need antibiotics and what can you do at home to treat the symptoms. Uh, But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about, because I've seen it all over the news uh, recently this week, because a new study actually just came out Monday. Uh, talking about media use and brain development in our young children. And I know we've done a show on here before where we talked about media use and screen time in our kids and why it's so important to limit that. And a lot of that was based on developing research and some associations that we have seen. And so an association is not necessarily proven. It's just we look and we see data that show that kids that used a lot of screen time um, were overweight, and it appeared that they may have a language delay. But there was nothing to truly show that. However, this new study that just came out on Monday shows that. It's the first study to document actual changes in the brain structure in our preschool-age children. So I just thought it was very interesting, and I wanted to make sure that we talked about it. And if you had any questions or comments, We would love to hear from you, so give us a call. So what the study did, it showed they tested 47 pre-K children. So the ages of the kids were three years old to five years old. And what they did was they got the parents to fill out a questionnaire that asked a lot of questions about screen time, the kids' access to screens, and tried to rate how... how much screen time the children got. And so the higher the score in the questionnaire, the more exposure to screen time. And then what they did is they used a special type. It's essentially an MRI of the brain, but the the specific one that they used was called diffusion, diffusion tensor imaging. So again, it's just a special type of MRI. And they looked at those MRI results and compared it with the screening questionnaire. And those kids that scored higher in the questionnaire had some changes on their brain, which showed a correlation between increased screen time and changes in the brain. 
So what kind of changes did they see? What they saw was lower measures of myelination. And so what myelination is, so you have two types of brain matter. You've got the gray matter and the white matter in your brain. And the gray matter is what makes up majority of your brain. So when you when you look at the brain, that's mostly what you see. It's most of the brain cells that tell the body what to do. The white matter, what the white matter is, is it is made of fibers that are bundled into tracts. And those tracts are what form the connection between the brain cells and between the whole nervous system through the spinal cord and everything. And so that white matter is very important to help transfer that information across the brain and the nervous system. And so if you don't have enough myelination and white matter, then you have problems with the brain's processing speed. And so the rate at some of the more executive functions, and that specifically we are concerned with language development in our kids, that can be a little delayed. So it was it was a very important study that came out. Um, it doesn't necessarily show exactly what's going on. We're going to need more studies to kind of look into this a little bit more and figure out exactly why it causes this. But we, um, you know, we do know now we have evidence that shows that increased screen time can cause some developmental issues because of the changes in the white matter in the brain. So some questions about it that I had and wanted to kind of read more about the study is what ages did they study? So it was all preschool age kids. So there's not necessarily any data out there for our older kids and our teenagers. So they were all ages three to five. And how much screen time did they actually have? So on average, it said the average screen time was about two hours per day. Uh, but it ranged anywhere from one to five hours. So two hours per day. The AAP, what they recommend, so under age 18 months, they say no screen time at all. And screen time, that includes your cell phone, your tablets, your TVs. That's any kind of screen that they could be exposed to. So under 18 months, they say no screen time at all. 18 months to two years old, they kind of say at your discretion, um, if you do no more than one hour a day, and they want you, the kids, to be with the parents going over the, like looking at the screens and playing the games and watching the videos. From two to five, they recommend no more than two hours a day. And so that's, that was kind of the AAP stance. I'm not sure if things are going to change now that this study's come out and that the average screen time was about two hours. So there may be some new recommendations coming out from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the World Health Organization. But as of now, the screen time recommendation for two-year-olds to five-year-olds is no more than two hours. And again, I think that's where people get confused. The screen time is not just like sitting in front of a TV. That includes playing on your phone, playing on your tablet, watching TV, all the different screens that could be possible. So no more than two hours a day. As you get older and you're six and older, they don't really have a, a number that they go by necessarily, but they just, I usually tell parents, I just try to stick to that two-hour time limit and no more than two hours a day, even for my older kids as well. So very interesting. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 
So again, that's why we harp so much on screen time for our young kids, because this is when their brain is developing so much. So in the first three years of life, 80 percent is uh, is when the child's brain development occurs. Eighty percent of the child's brain development occurs under three years old. So it's very, very important that we take this media use and this screen time important and that, you know, it can be hard for parents, especially if kids stay with a babysitter during the day or grandparents during the day. We need everybody to be on board with this because it's hard um, as a parent if you're trying to make these rules at home, but when you're not around, those rules aren't followed. So try to get everybody on board with this. A few other recommendations we have for about screen time, you know, we talked about the hours and how much screen time kids need, but the other thing that AAP wants you to do is they want to make sure that you are involved with their screen time. So they're trying to go away from don't do this, don't do that, but instead do this. So do watch the programs that your children are watching. Be involved with them, especially if you're watching some educational shows like Sesame Street or things like that. You can talk about what they're doing when they're when they put the letter up there or the number, whatever they're talking about. You can kind of elaborate on that and discuss further with your kid. The other thing they want to do is they want you to look and figure out what apps, read up about the apps that they're doing. I saw something that said there are 88,000 apps that are labeled as educational. So a lot of these out here are advertising that they are educational, but we don't have a lot of information about them. So before you give your kid the tablet or the phone and let them play on the app, make sure that you know what is involved in that app and how is it really benefiting them. One other thing that, you know, we try to, apps are great. A lot of the apps are, are, are educational and can help them with their colors, with their shapes, with their letters, things like that. But a lot of those like nonverbal communication skills, watching your interactions, watching your emotions, watching how you handle situations, kids can't learn that from an app. So while they may be educational, and I'm definitely not knocking them, um, but try to think about all those other interactions that you can do with your child while playing the apps, while watching the educational TV show. And one last thing I wanted to just mention to you about um, media use before we get into all the other stuff about antibiotics is a lot of times we'll see kids use media, tablets, videos, cell phones as a way to calm them down. And so, again, that whole nonverbal cues that you get by interacting with your kid, your kid also needs to learn how to calm themselves down besides having to go straight to a video. You know, we toddlers have a hard and preschool age children have a hard time managing those emotions in general. Um, as you know, if you have any toddlers out there, or if you've raised any children, um, the, and, um, the emotions of a toddler are all over the place. And so we really need to let them learn how to manage those skills, because if they're given a video every time to calm them down, um, it, they're never learning those types of skills, those emotional coping skills that they need to develop. So 
All of that to say is we do know now that there is evidence, there is proof that there are some changes in the brain that happens with excess media use. And so we need to limit that to under an hour a day for our two-year-olds to five-year-olds so that it's very important that we can, because, you know, once they get behind, it's hard to catch them back up. So we want to make sure that we are trying to be proactive about this and limiting our screen time. So we'll take our first break. But if you have any questions or comments about what we talked about, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today, we're going to be talking about cold season and the different types of cold and symptoms that you get and what kind of treatments you can do at home, as well as how to prevent it when you need antibiotics. And we would love to hear from you. So give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So it is cold and flu season. Um, We have seen some flu cases already in the state of Mississippi, and colds are rampant right now. Um, In our clinics, we're seeing lots and lots of kids come in with colds. And um, a lot of the parents that bring them in also have similar symptoms. So I was going to talk a little bit about what you can do for your kid if they get a cold when they need antibiotics, because I feel like that's a big question when the kids come in the clinic and um, we talk to the parents about what we're going to do. They always ask about, well, can we just have an antibiotic? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that when the antibiotic is needed. Uh, Another question that I get a lot of times is, well, maybe I shouldn't have brought her in. When are we supposed to bring them in? And so we can talk a little bit about that as well. So the common cold, most of these are going to be caused by viruses. Pretty much everybody that gets an upper respiratory tract infection, it always starts with a virus. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have some bacterial component to it at some point, but usually all of these upper respiratory tract infections are going to be started by a virus. In our kids, it is super common because these colds spread like wildfire. And a lot of times you may not develop symptoms until a couple of days after you're exposed. And so you may not realize that you have been exposed to the cold and go to school or go to other places like the grocery store or Walmart. And you're spreading those germs when you didn't even realize because you hadn't developed the symptoms necessarily just yet. So these these spread like crazy. Cold spread 
um, all the time in our kids. And the average kid under two years old will have about eight to 10 colds during the first two years. So if you're in daycare, honestly, I've seen some kids get almost one cold every one to two months. So it's it's very common for kids to get colds. And it can be really frustrating as a parent, too, because these colds can last almost two weeks. And so your kid's been sick for 10 to 14 days. They start feeling a little better, and the next thing you know, they're sick again. And it just feels like it's a never-ending process, especially this time of year. But... Again, a lot of these are viral illnesses, and the body will get rid of this infection on their own, and they don't necessarily need any antibiotics. So we're going to talk about when you would need antibiotics. Most of the colds do start with a runny nose, and a lot of times it is clear at the beginning, but you may notice after a few days that it does become a little bit thicker. It may have a color to it. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that it's infected with a bacteria. That's one of the things uh, I see a lot of people come in and complain about in clinic is, well, I've got this green, thick snot. And yes, it can be uncomfortable and frustrating, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to treat it with antibiotics. Because what changes the color of the purulence that comes from your nose and the runny nose is the actually where the bacteria, I mean, excuse me, the white blood cells that come to fight the virus, they can actually change the color of the runny nose. So it's not necessarily doesn't mean you have bacteria there and that you have to have an antibiotic, especially if it's only been a few days. But it is not uncommon for it to turn from clear liquid to a darker color after a couple of days. You may run a little fever, And that's okay. Again, the virus is probably one of the most common reasons people have fever is a viral infection, not necessarily bacterial. And so the fever typically isn't going to be too high unless you have the flu. The flu does tend to make you run a little bit higher fever, but maybe 101, 102. Every now and then you may see like 103, but usually it stays about 101, 102. And the fever really shouldn't last for more than a few days. There are certain situations, especially with the flu virus, that the fever may last a little bit longer, like four or five days. But in general, most of the common cold fevers are going to last only about two to three days. If it does extend after three days, you should notice that the fever is trending down. So instead of having a 102 fever, it may just be 100.5. But if it's still staying 102, then you may need to go get checked out at that point. Because generally, you don't run a super high fever for more than three days when you have a, a viral infection. And again, like I said... You may not develop symptoms until about two to three days after contact with the virus. But once those symptoms start, it could be almost two weeks before the symptoms fully resolve. In general, it's at least it's usually about 10 days, Um, but it may take a full two weeks before you actually your body fights off the virus for the upper respiratory infection. We're talking today about the cold and when you need antibiotics. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. So do we have to make a diagnosis? Do we have to do any special test when you come to the clinic? Not necessarily. Uh, If you have a small child, we may consider testing for RSV to just let us know. Um, We may test you for the flu. 
otherwise, we typically, you know, you don't need blood work necessarily. You don't need a chest X-ray, um, if especially if it's only been a couple of days. Now, if it's been more prolonged and you've had fever for a while, then we may consider getting checking a CBC, which checks your white blood cell count. Or maybe getting a chest x-ray to make sure you haven't developed a pneumonia or any complication from it. But in general, when you go to the doctor, they're just going to check you out, make sure they listen really good to your lungs, that you have no evidence of pneumonia, look in your ears, make sure you don't have an ear infection, uh, make sure it doesn't look like it's strep throat or anything that would need antibiotics. And if everything checks out okay, then we'll probably send you home with just what we call supportive care. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the the doctor's not treating you when they don't give you a medicine necessarily. But a lot of times we just try to support the body through this and it will take care of the virus on its own. So what are some supportive care things? Um, It's very important to make sure you're getting rest. Uh, It's hard for the body to fight off the infection if the body is tired. So you want to make sure that your child and you as an adult, too, are getting lots of rest. It's very important. The other thing is fluids. Uh, Your body needs extra fluids as well, especially if you've had a fever. Because when you have a fever, your body automatically loses a little bit of fluids. So when you don't feel good, it's hard to eat and drink much. But it's really important to make sure they drink because you want to try to stay on top of that because with the fluid loss from the fever. A lot of parents will tell me, I can't get them to eat anything. And so what I'll tell them is just don't worry about food for the next couple of days. You know, if they want to have a little snack here and there, that's great. Let them eat. But really what you want to focus on is liquids. You want to make sure that you're trying to keep them hydrated. The best things for hydration is going to be water. Um, It's they're having some vomiting or if they're having lots of high fevers, you may want to consider an electrolyte replacement. So like a Pedialyte or a Gatorade. And that's just to help replenish those electrolytes that may be lost with some of those fluid losses from the fever. You don't necessarily have to do that, especially um, I had a little baby in clinic just earlier this week that really wasn't drinking much and was a little dehydrated and The mom said he refused to drink Pedialyte, which is not uncommon. If you've ever tried Pedialyte, it's pretty disgusting. It's very salty. Um, And so especially once your kid gets older and they tasted other things, it's going to be a little bit harder to get them to drink Pedialyte. Um, And so if you're at this point where they won't drink anything, they won't drink your Pedialyte, they won't drink your water, just get them to drink something. It doesn't matter what it is. Ideally, nothing with caffeine because caffeine is a diuretic medicine. I mean, it's a natural diuretic. But other than that, just try to get some fluids in them. We just need to make sure that we're not letting them get behind. Because once a kid gets behind, it's really hard to catch them back up with them drinking on their own. So the biggest thing is trying to be proactive. So lots of rest, lots of fluids. The other thing that we do is um, we try to, you may have seen, hear the doctor talk about nasal suction and bulb suction. And so, you know, those little nasal suction that you get when your baby's born in the hospital that has the little ball on it. Um, Those are probably one of the more common ones. They also make a little bit fancier ones that are more automatic that you can just push a button and it'll suction it. There are the nose Frida where you actually have a, a tubing that's attached where 
the parent can suck. Um, there is a valve, so you cannot suck up the runny nose. But those are probably my favorite. I tend to get the best results with those. Um, but whatever works best for you, the biggest thing is just trying to suction a lot of that out of their nose because that makes it hard for them to breathe. Um, and so if you can get a lot of that sucked out, that's very helpful for the babies. Sometimes, especially, you know, those first few days, their nose just pours, and so it's easy to suction them out. But after a few days, it may be a little bit harder, but you still hear a lot of that stuff in there. And so that's why we tell you to get the saline drops. You can get those over the counter. They make There's lots of brands out there that make saline drops. You could make your own saline drops um, by putting a little bit of salt and warm water. But essentially what the saline is doing is it helps break up that congestion so that we can suck out all that stuff that's up there in their nose and help them to breathe easier. That's kind of what a humidifier does, too. So you put a humidifier in the room at night, um, and it sprays the mist out there, and it helps them breathe that humidified air and that mist, which helps break up all that congestion in their chest so that they can cough a lot of that up. So saline is very helpful both for the nose and in the humidifier to help them break all that congestion up in their nose and in their lungs. We try not to use cough medicines or decongestant medicines in our kids um, until they get to be at least age four. So anything that has the DM in it, that stands for dextromethorphan, which is the cough medicine that we that we see a lot in over-the-counter medications. And the DM, we try to avoid that in any of the decongestions. So like phenylephrine, that's a common one that you may see in over-the-counter cough and cold medicines. We just don't have a lot of information out there about what the proper dose would be for a child. Uh, We know that there are side effects. You know, as an adult, if you've taken those medicines, you know, you can feel foggy headed for hours after taking that medicine. So if you think about putting that in your body as an adult, what's it going to do to a child? And so we just... With the side effects, we don't have great doses. We really try to avoid those decongestant medicines and those cough medicines in our kids under age four. Um, After about age six, we know it's fairly safe and it's fine to give your kids those cough medicines um, over the counter. But before age four, we really do try to avoid them. Antihistamines, you can actually give antihistamines. Uh, we, we try to avoid it until they get to be older. So we want them to be at least six months old before you give them antihistamines. So that's going to be medicines like Benadryl, Zyrtec, Claritin. Um, those are pretty easy medications that are helpful, that help with the symptoms, and they're safe to give in your kids. But we, like I said, we do try to wait till they're at least six months old before you give those medicines. And I would talk to your doctor, too, so you can make sure you're given the proper dose for those medications. Uh, for the cough, because I feel like that's one of the, the biggest complaints parents have is what can I do for this cough? Um, and if, if I can't give them the cough medicine, if you're telling me I can't give them the cough medicine, what can I do to help them? So honey actually works really well. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but if it is all natural, it actually has lots of benefits. It is has some antibacterial, antiviral, anti-inflammatory properties to it. It helps coat the throat, too, so to kind of suppress that coughing drive that you get. Um, it is very helpful. And there are actually studies out there, not in adults, but in kids, that show that honey is more effective than the DM part, than the dextromethorphan. 
Now, in adults, that's not the same. But in kids, we do know that honey actually works better than any of the other cough medicines that we have out there for our kids. The thing about honey is you can't give it until they're age one because there is an increased risk for botulism. And so you'll notice that a lot of your natural cough and cold remedies for the infants don't contain honey. And that's because we try to avoid honey until the child gets at least one. After they turn one, a lot of their Highlands, Zarbi, some of the more natural brands that have cough and cold medicines, essentially what's in those is honey. And they just flavor the honey or thin it out to make it a little bit easier and more tolerable for the kids. But that's essentially what's in those natural cough and cold medicines. And honey works really well. It's one of my favorite things. I always make sure I take honey when I'm in, whenever I get a cold, um, it just it just soothes things. It makes you just feel better overall with your throat and all that drainage that you have in your throat. But it works wonderful in children. So we'll get into a little bit more about when to take your kid to the doctor and when the doctor may prescribe antibiotics. And we'll talk why we don't always give antibiotics as well. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about cold and flu season and what are some treatments that you can do at home, when you need to go to the doctor, what when you need antibiotics. Um, and how to prevent some of these infections as well. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So we'll go to our caller, Shirley, in Starkville. Thanks for calling today. Shirley? Hello? Hey, what's going on today? Okay, so um, when we were little, uh, our mother used to make for us uh, something that we call lemon elixir. She would um, boil, uh, you know, cut up a lemon in a small saucepan of water and uh, boil it with some honey. I heard you mention honey. Um, And uh, it was very good at breaking up phlegm Mm -hmm. um and uh so when our mother um was aging and uh, she had had a stroke and couldn't you know take some of those uh medications for cough i did the same thing for her to to uh she had had a stroke and was difficult to bring up phlegm 
and uh, that lemon elixir uh, worked like a dream mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, you know, help to break up the phlegm and help her to, to cough it up. And, of course, there were no side effects because it, it was all natural. And then sometimes uh, I would put a, uh, a peppermint stick in it or a little round peppermint so that the mint also, you know, helped to soothe mm-hmm. and to break up the phlegm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, then one final thing, um, I'm really old-fashioned, so I always keep uh, some chicken parts on hand because and I always, <laughs> before our kids left home, uh, you know, to go to college, they'd always keep some chicken parts on hand because if you boil it and uh, use that natural broth, uh, to either just drink it or to put a little rice in it to make a, a rice or noodles in it. It's much better than the chicken noodle or the chicken with rice soup that you buy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about uh, the the chicken, you know, that you prepare um, from scratch. But so that chicken, whenever cold and flu season come around, uh, those are the two things I have on hand, some chicken to make some chicken soup and uh, some lemons and honey. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. I think you're not alone with the lemon and honey. Uh, I have a lot of people that do like hot lemon water, just essentially what you're doing, boiling the water and then putting the honey in with it. It is very soothing. It's very soothing. And the peppermint is a great addition because that, that mint or any of the menthol kind of flavors tend to open everything up okay so thank you for your program yeah thank you so much for calling and sharing that with everybody so we're talking today about colds and flus and some treatments that you can do at home and when you may need antibiotics if you have any questions or comments maybe you have some natural remedies out there like shirley does that you found that are helpful please give us a call and share those with us one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So when should you come to the doctor? Because, again, I have a lot of patients that will come in and their parents will say, well, maybe I shouldn't have brought them in. And when should when should I bring them in? And so some reasons to bring your kid into the doctor. So if you have a young child and they're under three months old and they get cold season, cold symptoms, I would definitely bring them to get checked out because sometimes it can be a little sneaky with their breathing and are they wheezing. And so you want to make sure that you get those checked out, especially if they're that young. If they're older infants or older kids and even as adults, you know, when should you go to the doctor? Like we talked about, you may run fever and you may have the runny nose, the clear that turns a little bit colored, greenish, yellow, whatever color it may be, um, in those first few days. And so that's okay. That's normal. You don't necessarily have to go to the doctor if it's only been a couple of days. Now, if it's getting to the third day, fourth day, and you're still having this fever, um, I would definitely go get checked out. If you're having any difficulty breathing or if you notice your kid is breathing a little bit harder than normal, a little bit faster than normal, one of the things that we always tell parents to look for is to pull up their shirt and look at their belly because you can see if they're having to use their ribs, if you see those muscles around their ribs 
pulling, then that means that they're having to work a little bit harder. Their body is trying to compensate for trying to breathe harder by trying to open up their ca- their air cavities. And so what they do is those muscles, you'll see those muscles working on those ribs, trying to open that up. So if there's ever any concern about how your kid's breathing, just pull up their shirt and take a look and see if they're having some trouble breathing by seeing all those extra muscles. Um, if you have a cough that doesn't get better, So it's been about a week and this cough is not getting any better. It may actually only be getting worse. That may be worth it to go get checked out because sometimes pneumonias can be a little sneaky and the symptoms could be developing before you actually have a fever that spikes. So if you have a nasty cough that doesn't seem to be getting better, I would definitely go get that checked out. Again, persistent fever, um, ear pain. So it's not uncommon for kids, especially under age two, to get ear infections once they have a cold. Uh, The reason that kids get ear infections is because the way that their ear canals are set up, they don't drain. You know, when you get a cold, everybody's experienced that fluid behind your ear or you've gone to the doctor and they've told you they've seen fluid behind your ears. Uh, But as old as you get older and you get bigger, your anatomy changes in your ear canals, and so it drains that fluid a lot better. In babies and in young kids, it doesn't drain that fluid very well. So the longer that that fluid sits behind your ears, the higher you're at risk for having a secondary or bacterial infection that could cause an ear infection. So if you see your kid pulling at their ear, seem to be in pain from their ear, um, and they've had a recent cold, it could be possible that they could have an ear infection. And it's always worth it to get those checked out because the ear is really close to the brain. And so you always want to make sure that you, if you have an ear infection, ideally we want to make sure that gets treated so that you don't have any complications from that ear infection. And then if there's something that you're worried about, you know, you're the parent out there, you're the grandparent, you know the child the best. Um, And even as an adult, you know your body as well. So if there's something that you know is just off, like there's something that's just not right with my child or my grandchild, or there's something that's just not right with me, I know this isn't normal, I've had colds before, then go get checked out. Nobody is going to fault you for getting checked out. Uh, We definitely want you to come. We would rather you come see us sooner rather than than later before you could potentially get the complications from that. We're talking today about cold and flu viruses and when you may need antibiotics for treatment and when you don't. We would love to hear from you, so give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about cold and flu and when you need antibiotics. We've got a few minutes left, so if you have a question or comment or maybe you have some natural remedies that you use, we would love to hear from you. Call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 So we talked a little bit about when you may need um, when to go to the doctor. Some other things I just wanted to hit on is, you know, you can have a secondary infection after you have this viral upper respiratory infection. And so you'll see that after, you know, the fever, you may run fever for two to three days, like I said, just a normal viral infection, get better for a day or two, and then spike a fever. And that could mean that maybe you have developed one of these secondary infections, whether that's an ear infection or pneumonia. And so, it's not normal, it's not natural for the fever to go away and then all of a sudden come back. If that happens, I would definitely make sure you got to the doctor as well or took your child to the doctor because we want to make sure that you're not developing any of those secondary infections. We'll go to Suzanne in Jackson. Thanks Hi. for calling. Oh, you're welcome. I may have to hang up soon, so I'm going to just ask a quick question. You may have already answered this today, but what do you think about the Vic Sav? for the children when they're coughing and, you know, the baby versions, like the little Sorby brands. What do you think about putting those on their back? Yeah, I think that's okay. Those are pretty, usually pretty harmless. Um, a lot of times you'll hear people say they rub them in their feet, especially if it's a younger infant. I would be a little more cautious in younger ones, but definitely as they get older, it's I think it's actually pretty helpful. It's more soothing. That menthol is is very helpful. So it's okay as the kid gets a little bit, as the baby gets a little bit older, to rub a little bit of that in their chest or their feet, whichever you may prefer. Oh, my grandbaby is, is, is two and a half, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's definitely safe. This is more for, like, the younger, younger ones. Um, okay, well, thank you for your information. I'm going to hang up so I can listen to you. Yeah, thank you so much okay. for your call. Bye. Yeah, that menthol is very soothing. So some of those like things like Vicks Vapor Rub and things like that are, are wonderful. And actually, Vicks, I think, makes some solutions that you can put in their nebulizers that have some menthol in them. And so it, it again, is that same thing, you know, we talked about with the humidifier. You're breathing in that moisture and that mist, and it helps break up that congestion. And having some of that menthol in there is also just helpful and soothing overall, kind of like the honey is. When you take the honey, it's just soothing overall. So one virus in particular that I wanted to talk about, because I feel like I get a ton of questions about this from family, friends, um, and we see a lot of kids have breakouts in daycare. Some kids have to go into the hospital for it. And when parents hear the word, they just kind of freak out. Um, And that's RSV or respiratory syncytial virus. And so RSV is a very common virus that causes a cold. Um, The problem with RSV is it can affect the small breathing tubes in our lungs are called the bronchioles, and it can cause a bronchiolitis, which typically adults and older kids do just fine. It's our little babies that we worry about with RSV. Um, But RSV is not always scary. It can make your babies really sick, but a lot of times it can just cause a common cold. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that. And if you have any questions, give us a call or send us an email. Um, But RSV is very, very common. Uh, Pretty much every kid is exposed to RSV at one point in their life before they turn to. If we tested everybody, they would probably all test positive for it at some point before turning to. 
Again, it affects those smaller breathing tubes. And so why RSV causes problems is because like we talked about with a lot of colds, you get all that secretions, that runny nose, and those get in your chest when you hear that kind of rattling in their chest. But in little babies, since it affects the smaller breathing tubes, theirs are even smaller. They can't sit up. So that makes it all just kind of stay in there. They can't generate a good cough like we can as we get older. Um, And as we're adults, we're able to be up and moving around and moving all that stuff around and coughing it out. Little babies can't do that. And so those secretions tend to build up and it blocks those little airways. And so that's why little babies with RSV or bronchiolitis will wheeze. Um, Sometimes we'll give them a breathing treatment. Usually uh, what they recommend doing is giving it at least one time, like an albuterol treatment that you would give an asthmatic. But you may see that your baby doesn't respond to that. Um, And that's because it's a different process. It's because there's so much secretions in there that are blocking everything and not necessarily the spasms of the airways like it is for asthma. So it's not necessarily going to hurt them to give a breathing treatment, but don't be surprised if it doesn't help them uh, because it's, again, a different process. So the biggest thing for RSV, and when we put babies in the hospital for RSV, we're not giving them antibiotics. We're not giving them any antivirals because there's not an antiviral out there for RSV. Um, We are just supporting them through that. So we are suctioning like crazy. So like we talked earlier about the bulb suction and the saline drops, that's essentially all we're doing when we put babies with RSV in the hospital is trying to provide that extra suction and saline more aggressive than you can do at home with just equipment, Um, but that's essentially all we do. So the reason you may put a baby in the hospital for RSV, again, not all babies that get RSV have to go in the hospital. The reason we would was, you know, a lot of times in particular, I'm not sure what it is about RSV, but kids just don't want to eat when they have RSV. Uh, That's probably one of the more common reasons we put babies in the hospital with RSV is because they just don't eat. They get dehydrated. They won't eat. A lot of it has to do with their respiratory and them having to breathe a little bit harder. It's harder for them to eat, but Again, it just kind of decreases their appetite more than any other virus out there, it seems. Um, and they just don't want to eat. So if you if your baby's not eating and they're getting dehydrated, that's one of the reasons. If they're having a lot of hard time breathing, so like we talked about earlier, looking at their belly, seeing if they're having to use their muscles, their, their abdominal muscles to help them breathe. Um, if their nose is flaring, they're trying to use all these different ways to help slow their breathing down, but they're just breathing too fast and too hard. We'll put them in the hospital. A lot of times we'll put some oxygen on them and it just takes some support. I mean, it gives them some extra support to take all that pressure off their body to breathe. And that can be helpful too. And then sometimes they may need oxygen just because their oxygen levels are low. And so that's another reason we would put them in the hospital. So not every baby that has to go with RSV has to go into the hospital, but there are a few reasons why. And so those are some things to look out for if your child gets diagnosed with RSV. The other thing about RSV that's a little tricky is it tends to get a little bit worse, the symptoms, in about days three to five. So, you know, we were talking about how kids may run fever for the first two to three days. Um, but with RSV, their fever may break and they may actually not run fever, but their breathing gets worse. So their breathing tends to get worse on day three to day five of their illness. So right from when their symptoms start. 
you start counting. So days three to five from that. I have seen some kids not have bad symptoms until day seven of their illness. So you just never really know. But just know that the worst is not at the beginning. The worst is kind of mid-course for RSV. So keep a close eye on them. We do have a vaccine for RSV. It's called the Synergist vaccine. But not everybody gets the RSV vaccine, and it is a very expensive medication. And for your insurance to cover it, you have to meet certain criteria for it. And it's actually sometimes can be hard, even if you do meet the criteria to get your insurance to cover it. Uh, But what we do for the Synergist vaccine, if your baby was born significantly premature, so they have to be born uh, 29 weeks or under. So that's pretty premature. That's going to be almost three months premature. If they have a heart problem, so if they have any heart disease, if they have a lung problem, if they have any lung disease, um, if there is any kind of immunosuppression, then we'll give them that vaccine as well. And what we do for that, we usually start it in October, and we give it every month, once a month through March at least, sometimes April. But it usually starts around October. So if you know anybody that has a premature baby or a baby with a heart condition out there, make sure you talk to them. Are you getting the RSV vaccine? Because those babies tend to be the ones that get the sickest from RSV and the ones that have to go in the hospital like we talked about earlier. We have talked a lot about viruses and when you need treatments with antibiotics and why we don't always give antibiotics. If you have any questions, you can always send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org, and we'll be happy to get back to you and answer any of those questions. Uh, This is in Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio, and it's funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show was engineered by Jay White, and our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens, and stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on MPB Think Radio.